Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathrum. Welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathrum, and thank you. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. If it's your first time here, Along with our Monday mindsets designed to help you mindfully get your week started, we share stories of overcoming adversity, jumping off points, and the mindset-making moments that shape the lives of impactful leaders. Whether it's C-suite leaders, military leaders, government executives, high performers, professional athletes, what is it about them that allows them to succeed and what can we learn from them to get better together? If we want what they have, we've got to do what they do. And we're carrying the message to the everyday person who wants to get a little bit better one day at a time. If that sounds like you, make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening, on YouTube, on Instagram, and come find me, Philip Nathram, on LinkedIn. I want to connect with you. Be on the lookout for Copilot. We're in the lab and we're working hard to create a platform that's going to change the way we learn, revolutionize the way we think about fulfillment and career growth. Copilot is helping the whole human take off. We're helping you navigate the best version of yourself by building your own personal board of advisors. So be on the lookout. We'll be accepting applications and opening the waiting list shortly. We'll have more information coming up. So make sure you subscribe, connect on LinkedIn, make sure you don't miss out on the opportunity to be a part of the founding members cohort. We're doing something different. We're doing something impactful. This is going to change the way we all think about how we become our best selves. Today's episode is with Tom Harker, former Navy secretary and just an overall great person to know. We recorded this episode a couple months ago when he recently retired from being the Secretary of the Navy. Him and I have a great conversation. We talk about those impactful moments that have affected him as a young sailor in the United States Coast Guard that he still carries with him all the way through every position that he's held, whether it was in the private industry or Department of Veteran Affairs, Department of Housing and Urban Development, Department of Defense. He's got a career that has gone multiple different directions and every step of the way he's learned a little something more, but he's kept this one thread of leaning into fear, allowing people to fail, allowing himself to fail and how he can become better. So we have a great conversation. I'm really excited to share this one. In addition to being the Secretary of the Navy, he's an avid surfer. He likes beach volleyball. San Diego Chargers fan. We just have a great conversation and really get to know him and some of the impactful moments of his career. So really excited for this episode. And before we begin, here's a quick note from some of our sponsors that make this show possible. This episode is sponsored by Ben's, the business executives for national security. Join hundreds of senior and executive leaders dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out their projects and upcoming events at www.bens.org. That's www.bens.org. Org. Benz, the business executives for national security. 
This episode is sponsored by Leashes of Valor. One leash saves two lives. Leashes of Valor is working hard to bring service dogs and post 9-11 veterans together in order to enrich both lives. They're a nonprofit founded by veterans right here in Northern Virginia. Check out their website, leashesofvalor.org. There you'll find warrior stories, opportunities to donate. You can shop their merchandise, which all goes to supporting their cause. We're excited to have their support and to support them in everything that they do. Check out leashesofvalor.org. Today's episode is sponsored by PenFed. They've got great rates for everyone. For more than 85 years, PenFed Credit Union has offered great rates on loans, checking, and savings, serving our military and local communities. PenFed is open to everyone. Helping their members save is how they grow. Go to PenFed.org to see how you can save more with their best-in-class rates, products, and services. PenFed. They've got great rates for everyone. Hey, well, Tom Harker, thank you so much for spending some time here on the DC Local Leaders Podcast. Really great to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Philip. Yeah, and congratulations on your recent retirement. Thank you. Yeah. What have you been up to so far? So I um, finished up at the Navy at the end of August, and I took my son off to college. He's going to school out in Santa Barbara. So yeah. we, uh, we spent a little time together, you know, just relaxing after I finished, and then I drove him across country. Uh, Headed out to California, got him settled in at uh, UC Santa Barbara, where he's a freshman. And yeah. so that was just a wonderful trip. Yeah, we were talking about that trip earlier. You guys, what, how many cities did you stop in on the way over there? Uh, we stopped in Iowa. We visited the farm where he grew up in Denison, Iowa. Uh, it's changed hands since then, but he, um, where, where my da- I'm sorry, where my dad grew up. Uh, yeah. it, and so we were able to go see the small town in, uh, where my dad grew up and show my son that. He'd never been there before, so it was nice. Then we spent time in Nebraska with some aunts and uncles and got to spend time there. It was really, really nice, special seeing them. And then um, we went to goodness, um, in Utah. Uh, we, we had to stop in Utah unexpectedly because he got some food poisoning. So um, we spent an extra 24 hours in uh, Moab, Utah, which is beautiful, beautiful location. He wasn't as entranced with it since he had you know a stomach bug, but I was able to... Uh, get out and see some of the sites there. It's a just beautiful painted desert area. And then um, we met up with his girlfriend and her dad in Las Vegas and introduced the two 18-year-olds to This is Las Vegas oh, wow. in a very closely chaperoned environment. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, continued go, uh, on into California the next day. Did they do any gambling while they were out there? Well, yeah, no, I think not at 21. Yeah. No, but it was, it was fun. We got to show them, you know, this is the strip, this is the casino, this, you know, kind of what it, all the hype is about yeah. and, you know, the pools and all that. Did you get out to the desert where they do the dune bugging and all the other stuff? No, no, we, we, we'd lost a day where, you know, between our planned rendezvous with his girlfriend and her dad, they were taking the Southern route. We were going up North to see family. So, um, you know, when you had the food poisoning, we didn't get to see it as yeah. much as we wanted to. We were hoping to go to the Grand Canyon and do a couple other things, but yeah, that's too bad. We'll make other trips. Well, yeah, because he's keeping the car out there. He is. So, yeah. well, but he's driving back by himself at that point. Are you going to fly out and drive Probably back? Probably fly out and do it again. I mean, yeah. I think it was such a great experience. Um, plus, he's um, still a relatively new driver. Okay. And so yeah, right. it, it'd be nice to split the timing with him. Yeah, he's been driving, what, two years, right? I guess if he's 18. About two years, yeah. Yeah. And he's driving, and it's, but there's a lot of freeway driving, and it gets pretty straight and dull going through some of the. Yeah, stuff if you're going in a straight line and following trucks. So having another person in the car makes it easier. Yeah. How many kids do you have? Two boys. Two boys. 18 and 21. Okay. Yeah, you mentioned your dad. Was he, so, so well, I want to talk a little bit more about you first. So you were in the Coast Guard, mm-hmm. and then you found yourself to the Navy. Yes. 
so I started um, uh, after college. I joined the Coast Guard, spent 20 years on active duty, uh, retired, went out to uh, a public accounting firm for a couple of years, then went back to the Coast Guard, um, spent a little time there, went to VA, and then HUD for a few months, uh, waiting for confirmation, going over to Navy. Yeah. Yeah, but in the in the Coast Guard, you've done, I saw that you were a buoy engineer. Is that? I worked what? on uh, an acquisition project where we were replacing uh, aging buoy tenders, which is, you know, the ships that go tend to aids navigation throughout okay. the, um, yeah. the coastal waterway and then also offshore at the entrances to harbors. Yeah, but you, you've done some some cool stuff, too. You were on a tactical unit. Let's, I want to hear the juice. So I started my initial um, reason for joining the Coast Guard out of college was that in high school and college, I saw some friends make some pretty bad decisions with drugs and okay. sent them down some bad roads. And so I wanted to do something about interdicting drugs. And yeah. so that was my reason for joining the Coast Guard. And were you, and where were you growing up at this point? Were you in California? Or San were you Diego. The and then I went to school up in Berkeley. Okay. So um, joined the Coast Guard, moved to the East Coast, got stationed down in Miami. So I was all... <laughs> you know, fired up about the drug interdiction and right. got to go down there and do that and spent uh, the first almost half of my career down there um, doing drug interdiction, search and rescue, uh, Coast Guard operational missions. It was great. Is that like a partnership with the DEA or something or like are you guys doing something separate? It's one of the Coast Guard statutory missions. Coast Guard is a multi-mission maritime military agency and they uh, have 11 statutory missions, one of which is maritime law enforcement. And so the interdiction of drugs is one of the major areas where they spend a lot of money and focus a lot of resources. And so yeah. the being in Miami, we worked throughout the Caribbean. And uh, one of my jobs down there, um, I was on the law enforcement staff. I was the liaison with the local DEA, Customs, FBI, other federal law enforcement agencies. How old were you then? Uh, 24 until I was around 30. 31. Yeah. You know, so I, yeah, I spent a good number of my younger years in Miami, which was Yeah, great. but that's, cr I mean, that sounds like a lot of fun when you're, when you're not working. It was a blast. Oh my yeah. gosh. The, uh, diving, the fishing, the friends, just having so much fun getting to be out there in the ocean and just having a wonderful time. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a lot of responsibility too, from a younger age. Like what are some of the things, you know, I, I like to talk about personal growth, you know, spiritual growth, if you want to get into that, but mm -hmm. leadership development, everything, just like who we are as people. Cause you've had this this great career and I've interviewed a lot of military and tech and government folks and just trying to soak up all those things that you guys have learned so that we can apply it in our own lives. But how, how heavy was that to be in an atmosphere like that where you're doing that type of work at that age? 24. I remember being 24 and I don't know that I would be maybe mature enough is the right word or like did the Coast Guard, what, what did the Coast Guard do to get you there? So one of the great things I, you know, the great opportunities I had was I worked for some really, really good leaders. You know, throughout my career, I've had great leaders and I've also had some that are not so great. Mm -hmm. um, you learn from both. But the lessons I learned down there was um, learned how to make mistakes, how to own up to the mistakes and then figure out a way to fix the problems. And yeah. so, um, you know, one, one boss, um, you know, allowed me to tie up the ship in conditions when I, um, I was struggling and, you know, the previous commander would have taken, taken it away from me and let somebody else do it if I'd started to get in trouble. And this one, let me just do it and keep doing it through yeah. uh, some gyrations. It was pretty tough. I was uh, ramming the bow of the ship into the pier and actually sent some concrete flying. Yeah, that's not good. Uh, no, the, the uh, base XO was down on the pier screaming obscenities up uh, yeah. while I was doing this. But my commanding officer taught me a very important lesson that day. It was, you know, 
he knew that he was comfortable with his ability to take control of the ship and do things safely. And that the damage to the pier was minor. You know, you could yeah. cover the concrete up pretty quickly. But that lesson for me has lasted the whole lifetime. And yep. so it taught me to let people below me make mistakes. And that unless it's going to be life-threatening, let him go forward and you'll learn from it. What did you feel like when that was happening? Just drenched in sweat. It's like, why the hell isn't somebody taking this yeah. away from me? Yeah. <laughs> what am I doing? But it, it helped form that. Um, you, you work through the stress, you get to that level of, okay, I can do this. I know what to do. And I got it and got the ship tied up and it was safe and everything worked well, but yeah. it was, um, it was definitely an interesting process. Yeah. 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 I can only imagine, you know, the, the night after that happened, like mm -hmm. what the self-talk and like what's going on in your mind, like, oh my God. It was, um, it was interesting. I went down on the pier and I picked up one of the chunks of concrete and I still have it at home. I had yeah. it on my desk at the Navy and I kept it with me throughout my career. It's one of those visual reminders of, you know, this person is making mistakes. I made mistakes. My boss let me mistake, you know, do right. it. Let the person run with it, turn it into a learning experience. Yeah. That mistake, I mean, like, you know, you wouldn't have otherwise learned. I mean, how else would you have learned? I mean, I guess you could have learned by watching, but there's no other experience that that was the evolution where i learned the most about ship handling mm. because it was you know literally uh, i had to fix it i got i made a mistake and i learned how to correct it and move forward and so it was one of those you know a lot of different lessons all rolled into one you know yeah it, it was great what do you i mean can you think of anything you applied that same lesson to later on in life that you kind of think back that you know if that never happened i never would have been in the mindset to do this yeah, that was my um, first division officer tour. And then when I was a department head, I had a number of division officers working for me. So it made me more tolerant of uh, a lot of the things they did. Yeah. Um, so that was definitely uh, helpful then. And then just throughout the career, as people do things, um, not everyone's going to succeed. Not everyone is going to succeed on the first try. And so how do you take their mistakes, their failures, their challenges and turn it around so that then they can succeed on their second or third or fourth try? Do you think everyone can succeed or that some people like it just will take longer for certain people? Absolutely. If you give people the right tools and the right training and they have their own intrinsic motivation and desire, they can succeed. Um, I've never met anyone who can't succeed at something. Now, in some cases, I've had to counsel people that maybe what you're trying to do isn't what you should be doing. You've got strengths here. Maybe you should go play on these strengths and do something different. Um, but everyone has the ability to succeed. How do you how do you figure that out? that or or what do you do because hearing that what you're doing is not what you should be doing probably won't be a great conversation for most people it's not but in some ways it can be liberating and in a lot of ways it can really help them out yeah. um it, it's it's been useful i think um i had one guy working for me who was an amazing tennis player and he wanted to continue to serve and be an officer in the Coast Guard. And he ended up getting out and going to the reserves and becoming a tennis coach and doing other things. And he still served. So he's able to serve his country, which was important to him. But he also was able to interact with people and teach them tennis. And that was something that he loved. And so it's figuring out what's the right path and how can you help people get on that right track. Is there a system you follow to kind of help them figure that out, like a pros and cons list or some sort of like journaling? Like, is there a process? For me, when I interact with people, it's more just the dialogue. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I love mentoring people. I love working with folks throughout my career. And having the ability to just 
you know, sit down with them over a cup of coffee, lunch or whatever, and have that dialogue where yeah. you are able to kind of dig in, okay, what makes you happy? And, and the, the, the tough ones are when they say, I don't know what makes me happy. Right. All right, well, let's continue the dialogue and you can help people see, you know, are they in the right direction? Are they, you know, if they're looking at potential changes, you know, what are the criteria they should be using to make that decision? Yeah. Do you come from a military family? Was your, were your parents, your dad yes. or mom? My dad was a officer in the Navy. He flew helicopters. Um, his brother was a naval officer as well who flew uh, fighters. And so the two of them used to yeah. talk about that, you know, a little yeah. rivalry, the fixed wing versus the rotor wing. And then my grandfather was in the army in World War One. my dad's dad. And then, um, you know, throughout my mom's family, uh, lots of different folks have been in the military um, dating back to the Revolutionary War. I found yeah. out I had an ancestor who fought at Bunker Hill. Wow. So, yeah, lots of uh, history out there when you take, yeah. take a little time and look into it. Do you think that's why, I mean, you talked about kind of why you wanted to join the Coast Guard with your your passion for, you know, drugs and having your friends. But do you think that you were more susceptible to that because you come from a military? Do you, did you feel that growing up? Like, um, I dressed up in my dad's flight suit and helmet for Halloween for several years. Uh, you know, I was all excited to be a naval aviator and then realized that with my vision, that was never going to happen. Um, but I was open to it. Uh, going through college, it wasn't something that I was considering. You know, I had always initially thought I was going to work in banking. And, really? uh, you know, my, um, there was a family run bank in San Diego that, you know, I'd worked at throughout the summers and winters when I was home on breaks. And I figured I would just go into their management training program. And then the uh, owner of the bank sold it right around my senior year. It's kind of like, okay, now what? <laughs> yeah. So it was, um, you know, a good friend of mine had gone to the Naval Academy and he recommended, wow, look at the Coast Guard, you know, Rich and other, you know, family friend of his had just joined and he was a pilot. And he's like, look at that. That'd be great. And so I looked into it and um, applied and got in. Did your dad and uncle bring up anything that you went to the Coast Guard, not the Navy? No, not at all. No, no. They were both happy Yeah, I was serving. You know, you know, obviously some inter-service jokes, but yeah, you know, I would. Yeah. It goes both ways. Right. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So, you know, what have, what have you been up to for the past couple of months? So you took your, you took your son to college. Took my son to college. Um, spent time with family, just reconnecting. You know, yeah. the, um, the amount of... Uh, time and mental attention being in you know the job i've been in for the last four years it takes it out of you and so yeah. being able to just have the downtime reconnect with family and uh, people you hadn't really seen it, it's been really really valuable yeah what how did you to be that busy did you have a system in place like what's your average day what did it look like then and then i want to get what it looks like now sure. but you know i like to ask people about their morning routines i'm a big morning routine person I think of it because of decision fatigue. We have a finite amount of decisions we make. So if I can put together a routine throughout my day that removes any, at least one decision that I have to make, that's mm -hmm. one more extra I get to use. Yep. But that's because of me. I don't want to, like, what, what was your average day to manage that much going on? What did you do to yourself? Yeah, you know, the, the best days are the ones when I would wake up, roll out of bed, go hit the rowing machine for 30, 40 minutes. And then from there, you know, get ready, have breakfast and go to work. Um, the worst days were when I wouldn't do that. And then I didn't have that, you know, yeah. sense of accomplishment first thing in the morning. So to me, it was, you know, get up, uh, do the morning workout and go. And that usually set me on the right foot. Did you wake up at a certain time or an exact it time every time? Depends on where I was in the job. When I first got to Navy as the assistant secretary for financial management and CFO, I, um, you know, started showing up super early, which made yeah. my front office staff really happy. Um, <laughs> until I realized that they all had to show up because I was there. So maybe I didn't need to be there at six thirty. 
Um, oh, really? Is that how that worked? Did they ever bring that up, or you were just kind of like, no, I kind of caught on though, and it mm-hmm. was you know the the one, um, but it you know that they were happy to do it, and it was also you know your first four or five months in a job, you're drinking from a fire hose and trying right. to gather everything in. So, um, you know, getting there at six thirty and leaving at six thirty or seven at night, it's it makes long days for everyone. Yeah, and uh, I was able to get to a space where I would show up a little later, um, and then take stuff home with me so that then they could you know get home and see yeah. their families um but it was um it was a good routine you know so when i was getting there by 6 30 i was usually up by five um when i was going in a little later i'd usually shift it to 5 30 or sometimes even six mm-hmm. but i've always been an early riser yeah was there i mean what about throughout the day because that position is is just as much strategic as it is political right you have a lot of pressure coming from you from a different from a couple different and the Navy CFO role, one of the main things I focused on while I was there was um, trying to transform a lot of their financial management practices into modern space. Um, they had nine general ledger systems. They had a lot of business processes that were um, you know, basically manual processes that had been moved into an automated environment rather than taking advantage of you know, the technology that was out there. So um, I kind of laid out a vision you know, here's the vision. We're going to accomplish this goal. It's going to, you know, focus on cleaning up audit problems, you know, fix how we allocate resources so it's more transparent on the budget side and then consolidate systems. So I called it my ABCs, audit, budget, oh. consolidation of systems. Spent a good amount of time traveling around talking to all the different people in the Navy that are in the financial management realm throughout all the major commands, getting everyone on board with this and then building the team to execute it. And so we've, um, you know, we spent, you know, that was, got there in January of 2018 and they just shut down six general ledger systems at the end of this September. So they've been able to execute against that vision, which is really impressive. Why do they have so many? They grow up over time and there's a sense of well, what we do is different. So we need our own system and that system isn't good. So we're going to build our own and it's going to be better. And so what you got was nine different systems, none of which were really good. Um, now they've shifted to where they're on one ERP system, which is um, better than the others, does better security. Um, but it also makes it easier because you only have to fix one rather than trying to fix all nine. So it uh, facilitated a lot of the problems and shifted a lot of the resources so that you're not trying to keep nine different things going. You're able to focus all your resources on one. Yeah. How did you come up with a plan going into that? So I'd had a good bit of experience at uh, Coast Guard in helping to develop their plan for audit. Um, yeah. When they were, um, when I first came out of graduate school, um, you know, I decided to study accounting against some of the advice of some of the senior leaders in the Coast Guard. They said, what? We don't need financial <laughs> accounting. That's crazy. Um, they were part of the Department of Transportation. The Coast Guard was this tiny little operating agency. The auditors came in maybe once a year for a week or two and looked at, okay, what are your cost of your engines? All right, we're good. We're done. After 9-11, DHS was formed and the Coast Guard was one of the largest agencies. So suddenly the audit financial accounting became important. And I was able to translate between the auditors and the operators and say, okay, when they're talking about internal controls, they're talking about all the things that you do before you take off a helicopter, before you launch a boat, before you get underway, before you start an engine, and, and turn a lot of that language there. So I built the Coast Guard's plan with a number of other folks. And I had experience doing that. So I was able to translate that to the Navy. Yeah. You had some confidence going in there. I guess I was asking, you know, for someone who's taken on a new role or let's say an entrepreneur, because that's uh, mm-hmm. kind of what you are now, right? You sort of build the plane as you fly it. 
what are some of the things that you like practices that you found were helpful to help you put together that strategic plan? A lot of it was learning about the Navy and the DOD and what are all the things I don't know. Uh, the biggest mm. challenge was there were a lot of those things I didn't know because I hadn't served inside DOD before, uh, at least not on the government side. And so finding the right people who knew the information was key. Uh, I was really fortunate. I had a deputy who'd been part of the Navy for 40 years, um, both on active duty and then as a senior executive. And so he was able to fill in a lot of the blanks for me. Um, I was able to bring in people from the outside, you know, some from the Marine Corps, some from OSD, who had a lot of that knowledge, and we were able to work together to build that plan. So it was really, I was the person at the top, but it was a team effort in building the plan. Yeah. And and were you open with them, like, hey, I need your help, and I don't, I oh, don't absolutely. know, like, with that vulnerability, like, you've just been comfortable with doing that, and yeah. just saying? Absolutely. I mean, I, my, one of my life lessons is looking at people in jobs and saying, don't let your ego get in your way of um, getting mm -hmm. the job done. And so, so many times you'll see someone say, well, I'm the best at this life to do it. Right. And if I'm in charge, I shouldn't be doing, I should be enabling other people to do and figuring out how to get them to be the best at it so that I can be helping them, mentoring them, guiding them. Mm -hmm. And then they can take my job and I can go to a different one, which yeah. is actually what happened during my time at Navy. I was able to go be the OSD CFO and then, um, I'll come back as secretary. Yeah. Do you think that's ego also? Like, I think because ego, pride, these are emotions, right? Mm -hmm. Human emotions that kind of go both ways. Someone thinking that I'm the best at this, so I should do it is just the flip side of the same coin of someone thinking like, there's no way I could do that. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, were you able to reckon that it sounds like you were able to recognize some of that and some other people. What do you do with that? How do you coach that person up to so when you've got people who don't think they can do what you want them to do, a lot of times it's figuring out, okay, what's the motivation? What's the reasoning behind that? Uh, is it fear of change? Is it uh, truly not having the technical skills? You know, if it's not having the right skills, the right knowledge, we can do training. If it's the fear, you know, we can work with them through that. You know, a lot of the work that I've done over my career has been figuring out how to make processes better, how to make things uh, more efficient, more effective. Mm -hmm. And so that whole change management body of knowledge, there's a lot of work out there and um, yeah. then reading and just talking to people. Yeah. You mentioned something, fear, like what, um, how do you normally process fear? Like when you're, I mean, fear and anxiety mm -hmm. sometimes can feel the same way. Like it, yeah. being anxious about something will say, oh, I'm afraid of it. You're not really afraid of it. You're just anxious of what the, the results could be. Right. So I think but, for me, one of the challenges has always been, um, you know, Going back to that initial lesson, I was freaking out when I was trying to yeah. tie up the ship and you know ramming the bow into the pier. Yeah. Um, Everybody, but I quickly at you. figured out how to adjust for the wind and the current, and you know twist the engines and do all that and do it in a safe manner. As I dealt with other fears and you know potential failures, it's like okay, what's the worst that can happen? You know, when I'm in an operating environment, when you've got people that you know it's life or death you're operating at a different level when you're here inside the beltway, when you're working inside an office environment on a system implementation, the risks aren't as extreme. And so I've been willing to fail many times in my career um, and not have a hundred percent success. One of the challenges you see working in the government is people want to guarantee success before they go forward with things. So things take a lot longer. Um, things don't move as quickly. During my time at Navy, I was able to go in and tell people, okay, I understand your concerns. There's lots of fears around these changes, lots of anxiety. 
what is the worst thing that's going to happen? And they would articulate all of these potential doomsday scenarios. And I would look at it and say, okay, I'm going to accept the risk that you've articulated as one that I'll accept, and we're not going to do anything about it. We're going to go forward and make the change. And so I pushed through a lot of the system changes, pushed through a lot of the um, migrations, and bad things happened. But it wasn't catastrophic, and no one died. There were things where, you know, for a period of months, we didn't have accurate financial information. But that's okay. It was the beginning of the fiscal year. We weren't going to spend more than we had. It took a little longer to clean up data, but, you know, the option would have been delaying a year. And so just figuring out where on the level of risk your, your tolerance is, and then also letting people know that it's okay for them to not succeed 100%. Yeah. Yeah, it's okay to fail. I mean, and is it failure or is it learning? Is it just figuring out what not to do? It's both. I mean, I think the, um, you know, when I did the graduation speech at the Naval Academy uh, in May, one of my words of advice to the young midshipmen who became ensigns and second lieutenants was that you are going to fail in your career. Some of you will probably fail within 24 hours. Pick yourself up and move forward. And so it's, you know, a failure is a setback. It doesn't have to be a true failure. Right. And it's getting that mindset of acceptance of the risk. Um, you know, one of the things I've been fascinated with is how do you calculate risk? Um, you know, you look at um, value versus risk. And at some point, if you go on a, values on the um, x-axis and risk is on the y-axis, you're increasing your risk. That's increasing your value to a certain point, And then it goes back down. And so where is that individual curve for each of us? And if you look at it, think of it as like a bell curve, you know, at a certain point, you're going to be increasing your risk and getting more value out of it. And after a while, it starts going back down very quickly. And so how is that bell, how is that bell curve shaped? How does it manage, you know, how do we each manage those things and what's our comfort level? And I found that for me, because it's not a life or death decision for a lot of the financial stuff, I was able to accept more risk than you'll typically see on the financial management side. Now that changed when I was secretary because then it is much more of the life or death side. So it's how do you manage accordingly? But yeah, right. are you a list maker? Well, um, not on a routine basis. I'll make lists of things if I start to feel like there's more than I have the ability to manage in my mind. Yeah. No, you. Do. I, I was. I paused there for a second because you said so many great things uh, when you were saying when we were talking before, but. Um, it sounds like, yeah, you're, you're identifying all the possible outcomes, mm-hmm. right? Did you weight them at all of like, this one's worse than that one? So let's, were you like, was there a rubric at all? Or was it just like, all right, now that yep. we know all of the possible outcomes, no one's pregnant, no one's dead. So it's not life or death. Let's just, we're willing to accept any one of these possibilities. It's so the Department of Defense and, you know, other folks, all of the process for measuring risk. You, know, you look at what's the probability and what's the um, impact. And so it's typically a five by five matrix. Um, and so as you look at where people are on the risk, some people will say, oh, that's a f- high probability, high impact. I would rate that as a five. And I look at it and okay, well, that impact isn't really high to me. I could see why you might be afraid of that failure because it would reflect poorly, but I'm willing to accept that failure knowing that we can recover later. So I would rate that impact as a three which means it's not as catastrophic and we're willing to take it. And so it's, it's more of a rubric looking at um, things from a lens where if people are working for you, they don't want to fail you. If mm. you're the person in charge of the effort, you look at what's the risk of not acting. 
what's the risk of not doing this? And that is frequently in government, it takes longer or it costs more. And so where do you go and say, where's that true value point? Where are we, where we've maximized value, where we've gotten um, the most we can out of this without accepting too much risk? Yeah. Do you apply that same sort of thought process to your, to your everyday life? To a large degree, which yeah. probably drives my kids crazy. Yeah. What's the scariest thing you've done or like the most risky thing that you've done that like other people are like, all right, so on that rubric, that's like way up there on risk. And um, it's changed over time. When I was much younger, I would, you know, not exactly make the best of decisions. Um, you know, well, like what? Doing search and rescue cases, I was out in a tropical storm once, oh. um, and it, you know, we were looking at going on board this ship, and they were, they were becalmed, and they were in the trough. They were rolling pretty viciously, and I was out. You know, The captain trusted me to go out in the small boat because he had a lot of new crew members, and so it was me uh, when I was at apartment head, which was not normally where you go, and I was with a bunch of junior people, and I was like looking at this. I'm like, this is not safe. This is not safe, and then we ended up jumping on board and doing it. We were able to tow the ship into Miami, but it was one of those we put some of our lives at risk doing it. And if I were making that decision now, I would have said, no, don't do it. Let's just wait. You know, we'll sit here. We'll make sure they're not going to sink, but we're not going to yeah, send people on board that ship when you've got, you know, 20 foot seas and it's an 80 foot freighter and it's rolling in the trough. I mean, that was it daytime or nighttime. That was daytime, but it was, um, it was going from a small boat to uh, 80 foot, 90 foot freighter. It was not. How'd you get on? Very carefully. <laughs> they were able to lower a ladder, but okay. you've got like the, the, the rolls. I mean, the whole thing is just, you just time it, you jump and you climb. And it was, yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. In your twenties, you think you're bulletproof. Right. And it was not you know, that, that, that was one where I look back now. I'm like, God, <laughs> but everyone survived and no one got hurt. Um, but I think that's also helped adjust and compensate for risk. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, that, that was kind of, yeah, like I wanted to get an idea of like a lot of people I've talked to, they try to do something new or scary every single year. And mm-hmm. you've had way more opportunities to do some pretty scary stuff. Were you a paratrooper? Did you ever skydive or? No, I grew up, um, uh, I mean, when I was one of the tactical law enforcement teams, I learned how to repel and then fast drop out of helicopters. That was fun. Yeah. I worked with the FBI SWAT team. We did some fast roping down elevator shafts in the dark where that's pretty scary, but I got a lot of that out of my system early on. So now I'm not as, I'm not as fascinated by those things. I'm yeah. more, let's find new experiences that are enjoyable that don't necessarily involve fear. Yeah. But, but you did those though. So I think oh, yeah. there's something about that. I think, right. That you did at least have those experiences at some point yes. that make your tolerance of risk or fear or dealing with certain things a little bit yeah. Uh, no, definitely. That, that was in my early 20s. So it was before the brain's fully developed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The uh, 25 or 26, I yeah. think, is when guys. That's what they said. Yeah. Yeah. And I keep hoping for my kids. <laughs> do you uh, do you take cold showers? Are you into like Wim Hof? Do you know Wim Hof? No, that's new to me. Yeah. Um, they call him the Ice Man. Um, but so what you said. So I take I talk about this on almost every show, but it's just fun for me. to okay. talk. But um, cold showers, I never want to do it. It's never a gr- like it's never fun, right? I never say to myself, "I can't wait to walk into a freezing cold shower," mm-hmm. but I do it anyway okay. for the whole for the purpose of doing something in the opposite of what I think is a good idea, in the opposite of my comfort. Okay, like 
zone and, and just doing it anyway, doing the hard thing anyway, first thing in the morning. Okay. Do you have any kind of practice that's sort of like that where, you know, you go out into the wood, like you, I don't know. Getting on the rowing machine for 40 minutes first thing in the morning is not necessarily something I want to do, but it's something I feel like I should do. Um, the, uh, yeah, no, cold showers, no. No, uh, I love no. body surfing in the Pacific, which, you know, people who grew up on this coast would say that is a cold shower because there's yeah. a good, significant temperature difference. Um, but, yeah, no, most of the things I do now are more, um, if I'm not, I figure work's challenging enough, or at least yeah. it has been, has been, that let's focus on what, you know, what you can to help relieve stress and yeah. enjoy life. What's life, I mean, it's got to be different now that you're retired, right? Like, what's your everyday just emotionally, what are you feeling like these days? So it, it's been nice to have some time to decompress. You know, I'm 53 years old, so I'm not truly retired, but it's, uh-huh. uh, it's definitely a life change. And so I, I really focused on connecting with family, um, spending as much time as possible with my two kids, um, helping my older one kind of um, redirect his life. Uh, he was initially, you know, going to um, Nova COVID and online learning didn't work well for him. So yeah. now he's back at Nova, but he's learning how to be an auto mechanic. And so it's like helping him go there yeah. and working with him. And he's thrilled. He's getting ace. He's yeah. doing great. And it's like, all right, this is a kid who had learning disabilities, who struggled throughout high school, wasn't doing well in community college when it was an academic track. But now that it's hand-on working with cars, which he loves, he's having a blast and he's doing well. And so helping him get that level of comfort, building that self-confidence, that's just been so much fun for these last couple months. Yeah. Um, then with my youngest, you know, more academic minded, you know, talking to him, he's taking a philosophy class. So, you know, <laughs> discussing yeah. Machiavelli and Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and all the fun, exciting things and Hannah Rent and just the political theory. It, it's great. I love that. So that's yeah. been nice. Um, but I'm also starting to look at, okay, what do I do that can add value? You know, part of being in government, part of working with Department of Defense, part of working with, you know, Homeland Security, VA, HUD is a sense of mission. You know, all, yeah. all three of those, four of those departments have different missions, but there's that strong sense of mission that brings everyone who works there together. And now that I'm on the outside, I want to figure out how to recapture that. And so I've started uh, talking to different companies, looking at how can I add value to you in a way that also allows me to do things on the not-for-profit side. Now, one of the things I did when I was secretary was focus a lot of um, attention on mental health, uh, both inside um, for the military um, there and then now i'd like also look at uh, helping with veterans yeah. access is a challenge um but there's also a stigma that's still associated to it in that military mindset of going to get mental health treatment and so you see high rates of suicide in the military you see high rates of suicide in the veteran community and it's something where i started um started working with it when i was acting secretary of the navy and it's something that i definitely want to continue to keep working on yeah, is the stigma that you're somehow weak or if you it's, need it or you go get it? It's one of those things where, you know, the warrior ethos is I'm a warrior, I'm strong, I can overcome. And that's true. But what we have to shift the paradigm to is, yes, and I go see the doctor when there's something wrong with my ankle, my knee, my back. Right. I'm going to do the same thing when there's something emotional. Right. And, and a sick so, mind can't fix a sick mind. That's just not how that works. It isn't. And so it's, it's building that, those tools and techniques. And the military's done a lot of great work in that area. They've built up sprint teams that'll go in and intervene when there's a traumatic situation. Uh, that was actually something that I talked about in one of the videos I did when I was Secretary of the Navy. They came and helped me when I was in the Coast Guard, and we picked up a bunch of um, dead bodies uh, after a ferry boat had capsized. But it's, it's, it's getting it to where 
do you just naturally think of that? How do you train that into the people? And so it, yeah. it's a challenge. You know, one of the things I loved about being the acting secretary was I was able to work with the chief naval operations, coming on the Marine Corps, the sergeant major of the Marine Corps, the master chief petty officer of the Navy, other leaders to get them to all kind of do their own videos and talk about the importance of this. Kind of yeah. break some of that stigma down and get people to go get help when they need it. Well, that's, I mean, that's the power in sharing your own personal experience mm-hmm. with that subject. It, and it works in, in many different ways. I mean, I, you know, like I, I think I, we were talking earlier, like I got sober seven years ago. And one of the most amazing parts of that is being able to have a community of people mm-hmm. that know exactly what it's like and that it's, it's not some sort of moral thing. It doesn't make you a horrible person. It, it doesn't, none of these things, all the things that I thought. Mm-hmm just weren't real. Right. Uh, well, they were real to me. They weren't true. Something yes. can be real and not true. And I yeah, had exactly. to learn that too, because yep. I had a lot of ideas how the world works and there's only but so much happiness to go around and I just didn't get any. And, you know, only certain people get to do certain kind of things. And, you know, you just have yep. to stay out of the way, hold your breath on the Metro. So these good enough people have more air to breathe. And like, you know, all these, all these things, all these ideas that were so they were real, not, but not true. Right. And a lot of it existed within me. And, mm-hmm. and I guess when it comes to, I mean, you know, mental health and depression and all these things, there's nothing like one person sharing their personal experience with another person. It just, we're uniquely qualified in that sense to be able to help another person. Yeah, definitely. And that's one of the things I did to try to break the stigma was I talked about the three times in my life when I've sought mental health treatment. And as the secretary of the Navy saying that and doing that, it opened it up for other people to talk about. And suddenly it's like, I was talking about how doing that helped me succeed and helped me get to where I was and it kind of breaks it down. And then, you know, other people were able to point to that and you saw other senior leaders as well as mid-tier leaders and even junior leaders come in and come forward and talk about it. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where the more we talk about it, the more we break that stigma, the more we can get a handle on the, um, the mental health challenges that people face while serving their country. And, cut down on the suicide numbers. Yeah. You look at the, um, in, in 2020, you know, the, the military had huge impact uh, suicide. Had over 500 service members across all of the service branches committed suicide, uh, whereas only 24, 25 died of COVID. And so you look at the risk and return on investment there. Uh, we spent over a billion dollars fighting COVID, which was natural response. It's unknown, fearful, you got to fix that. But I also think we need to fight the mental health battle, get more access to care, uh, make it easier for service members to get treatment, make it easier for their families to get treatment, and get the um, insurance industry to figure out how to um, get treatment to the places where we need it. You know, you've got a lot of psychologists here in D.C. You don't necessarily have that in, you know, um, Marine Corps Air Station, Cherry Point, or other places where we've got a need uh, they they don't have as many providers, especially right. ones that'll take the Tricare uh, insurance. So it, it's a challenge. It's something that I'm just starting to dig into, and I know there's a lot of really smart people that have been working on it. Um, but I I want to pitch in and help wherever I can. So yeah. that's definitely something that I'm going to continue doing in my retirement, uh, as well as then working with companies and looking at how I can help companies contribute to the DoD mission as well. Yeah, yeah. So so you're now you're now officially an entrepreneur. You've left. Uh... What's that feel like? It, it was strange. I mean, my first week after leaving the Navy, yeah, I woke up at six on Monday morning and I was like, all right, what am I going to do? I formed an LLC and I registered with Sam and I started doing all this. And it was, um, 
it was just figuring out how to slow down. And now it's looking at, okay, where do I really want to add value? Do I want to go? Um, and I think what I've determined is that it's mostly strategic and or um, advice to companies where, you know, here's how I think you could really help the Navy or the Marine Corps, or the Department of Defense, based on the background I have as CFO or secretary. And then also on the not-for-profit side, looking at the, um, you know, the mental health piece. And then, um, so this is one of the things I love, you know, studying accounting, I'm a bit of a cost accounting geek. And so okay. I've teamed back up with an organization that I um, belong to at different times in my career. Uh, it's a consortium of Advanced Management International, and I'm on their board. And it's looking at how to um, be more efficient, more effective in a lot of their processes. These are the group that kind of worked with Bob Kaplan at Harvard to form ABC and, you know, put activity-based costing into industry over, you know, like 50, 60 years ago or 30, 40 years ago. Um, but they've been around for a while. And so now I'm looking at, all right, what else can we do? How can we focus on ESG? Um, how can we apply the lessons learned on other, you know, cost management things and look at that from an environment, social uh, governance standpoint? Are there other things that we can do to help make companies um, you know, more effective and, you know, what's the, the future there. So that's, that's kind of fun. Yeah. That's geeky, but fun. Yeah, I'm, you know, but it's, it's right up your alley, you know, having studied accounting and doing mm -hmm. the thing that, uh, doing the work that you did. Yep. Um, did you, so, you know, did you have a plan when you first started or did that develop over time of like, did you do like a business plan of like what you want to do or journal anything, write anything down? Or were you just kind of like, let's just get the LLC formed no, and take that action. Let's do this. Cause so one of the things I did when I was, um, uh, coming to Navy and I'd done it previously, I was, but Navy has a program for their executives where they'll bring in an executive coach. And I was able to find a superb one. You know, mm -hmm. she was able to work with me throughout my time, both at Navy and then as OSD comptroller and then back at Navy and help me with, um, putting frameworks in place, pulling tools out of other backgrounds that she had and experience. And uh, she'd dealt with a lot of senior Navy Marine Corps people who'd transitioned into the private side. And so she was able to give me stuff to read. Like, I read this, think about this, here's some thoughts. And so I was able to kind of form a plan and change it multiple times. And um, what I came up with is I really want to focus on you know, building a portfolio of my time and look at, okay, what do I want to spend time doing? So a lot of that's you know, reconnecting with family. Um, you know, flying out to California every couple few weeks to see my son yeah. and go to a football game with him, you know, lifelong charger fan there in right. LA now. So he drives down from Santa Barbara and I get to go see a charger game with, uh, my cousin and his son and then my son. And so yeah, you guys bought tickets, right? Yeah, have... I did. I bought uh, tickets to four games this year and then going to get season tickets next year. Yeah. So, but, but, but it's family, it's the not-for-profit side, both the, um, the mental health piece and then the, the cam I group. And then it's also looking at, um, you know, where can I work with industry to help them um, provide better value for the warfighter so that I can stay in touch with that, um, that, that, that contribution to the mission. And she gave you a format for that or just told you to like put those in buckets and kind of figure out, did you weight those she, in any way? Or? She talked to me a little bit about how I go in and find value and how I look at what to do and what's important to me and where are areas where I can, um, where I can get what I need. To, to feel good about myself while also contributing value to companies. And I think I've yeah. got a lot of uh, experience that would be very valuable to companies that are working in this space. Um, but I don't want to do that full time, a hundred percent and just dive into that. I also want to have time for, you know, 
family exactly. time yeah. for the not-for-profit stuff. And then uh, I also love playing beach volleyball. So, yeah. yeah. So are I, you on a team or a I league? Or? Yeah, I'm with a, uh, I'm playing with a bunch of folks that are 20 plus years younger than me. And uh, we have a blast. Yeah. Where, what beach? Like around here? Uh, we just play a sand court. But uh, growing oh. up, I'd play out in California. So whenever I go out there, uh, if I go to Del Mar or other places, I, you know, play pickup or with my family. Nice. Is this yeah. like, and you have your jerseys, you got your team names and we've got, you know, there's a couple of different social leagues here and we'll play in one of those, uh, with the team locally. And then out in San Diego, it's usually family. Um, yeah. You know, my brother-in-law, my sister, my brother, uh, my kids, cousins, lots of yeah, like ongoing rivalries that you oh, talk yeah. about at the holidays. And my sister and her husband both live in San Diego and they both teach. So they've got June, July, August off and they take their daughters to the beach and they both surf and they both play volleyball. And so, you know, the rivalry grew up between my sister and her husband against my brother and I. And, you know, I think my brother and I have maybe won three games over the course of this rivalry. But when we do, it's like, yes. Yeah. And then you just never let them forget it. Just... Uh, no, it's, it's just yeah. the, the satisfaction of finally winning. But it's, 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 it's been it's turned into just a really fun time. Yeah. And now watching the kids play. I mean, my nieces are nine and 12 and you know, the 12 year old's better than I am. Yeah. She just plays all the time. And the nine year old's getting close. Right. Yeah. You know, I ask everybody and I think we kind of covered this, but I want to make sure I get it from you. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is the one question that I ask everybody that's ever been on the show. Okay. We talk about gratitude. I'd love to hear how you practice gratitude too. But this question is about a jumping off point. Mm-hmm. And so it's a moment in time where you can no longer keep doing what you're doing, mm-hmm. but you're unsure of what to do next. And some people have described it as even, you know, in that moment of time where they knew they could no longer keep doing what they were doing, it was like a really either fearful or challenging or just either physically or mentally painful, like something they just, they, they hated it at the time. Mm-hmm. And they, they often felt like, I wish that never happened. But now... They're just incredibly grateful that it did because they wouldn't be either who they are or have the relationships in their life that they do or be in a position to help or serve or do anything that they can now without that experience. So I think for me, it was transitioning out of the military. After you spend 20 years in an organization, you know, it's very hierarchical. You know, you're um, you're limited in how quickly you can advance. You're limited in what you can do. And I loved it. But it was also an opportunity to go try something different. And, you know, my initial plan was <laughs> interesting siren noise. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you know, my initial plan was to go into public accounting and I was going to go down that route and I was going to just spend the next half of my life doing that. And after a little while due to life circumstances and whatnot, I realized that wasn't really going to work and I wanted to go back to government. So I did. Um, but it was being on the civilian side, you've got a lot more opportunities for advancement and you, know, you can shift jobs much easier than you can on the military side where much, you know, much more regimented. And so for me, that opportunity to just kind of jump and do different things, get different experiences helped prepare me for everything that I've done. I yeah. feel like, you know, going into the Navy CFO job, I had the right background because I'd worked at VA. I'd seen things differently. I'd spent time at HUD, seen how they did things. I'd spent time on the private sector doing auditing and consulting as well as all of my time in the Coast Guard. And I felt like I had the right skills and tool set to come in and, and lead that organization in a different direction where they'd been going on the financial management side. Going down to be OSD comptroller, having been at Navy and all those other experiences allowed me to go there, uh, really diving into the budget, looking at you know what weapon systems to invest in and working with CAPE and the deputy secretary to kind of go through that decision-making process. 
And then that really prepared me to come back up and be secretary. And so all of the different steps just kind of led me to this path. Uh, but had I not left the government, or had I not retired from active duty, I never would have had any of those opportunities. Yeah. Was it, I mean, what were some of the things you were feeling about retiring? Like, what was keeping you from just doing it anyway? Or like, what were some of the things going through your mind to consider? Um, nothing was keeping me from doing it. I was looking forward to it. I knew that um, based on the experiences I had and the background and all the things, I was excited to be out on the private sector. Yeah. Uh, looking at it as a challenge, obviously there's, you know, what, what are you going to do? Where are you going to work? What's the reality once you change? Uh, but I was excited about it. I started preparing for it as a, um, about halfway through my career, looking at, um, I had uh, two bosses that worked for me who didn't get selected for promotion to the next level. And then another boss who was at the 20 year point, he didn't know what he wanted to do. So we ended up staying in another 10 years and doing 30 years. And I looked at it, I don't want to be in that space. Yeah. I want to be prepared. And so I started looking, okay, what tools am I going to need? How can I prepare myself? How can I get ready for that? So it was more of a, yeah, it was a jumping off point, but I made sure I had everything I need to be ready to jump as far as I could and as fast as I could. Yeah. And you mentioned something right when we first started talking is that sometimes the advice is what not to do, not necessarily what to do. And that's equally as valuable. And it sounds like no disrespect to any of them, but just you saw what you didn't want the... Mm -hmm end of your service career to look like yes so you made decisions and found you know found what you wanted it to look like or at least took some other opportunities to figure that out along the way yep very much so i think that um as i observed people and looked at what was um you know what what the different opportunities were what the different possibilities were i was able to make an informed decision and you know do what i uh, wanted to do and able to course correct when things changed and i was you know looking at coming back in and it it all just worked out. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of it's luck. A lot of it's also being prepared for when the luck happens. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think it was luck or do you think it was opportunity and preparation meeting each other? I think it's a combination. combination I think there's, you know, there's always that, you know, what, um, you know, the lucky thing that just happens. But I think the opportunity and preparation is key. You know, one thing I've, one philosophy I've had going into every job is how do I turn this job and does something where I'm not just doing what, you know, the person I'm working for expects me to do, but I'm doing more and not, you know, whether it's achievements in that job or doing things on the outside, adding different things in, you know, how can I be innovative? How can I, you know, create more value? And so being prepared to do that, you know, you start getting a reputation for it. Yeah. Well, look, we talked a lot about a lot. I, um, you know, I really appreciate all the, the work that you're going to, you're trying to do with mental health and, you know, um, that just seems like something I'd love to, to help with and, okay. and work with you on uh, whatever I can do. Thank you. Um, just with my experience and other people that I may know. But mm -hmm. um, so before I let you go, okay, I want to get what's, what's been, give me the coolest story that you remember from being in the Coast Guard, the coolest thing you did. So in the Coast Guard, the coolest was, um, I was a, uh, the operations officer on a Coast Guard cutter, we got a call about a, um, an EPIRB, which is a satellite distress beacon that had gone off about 90 miles away. And we were in um, near the Yucatan Peninsula and you know, between Cuba and Mexico and you know south of Key West and middle of the open ocean. And they said it was a 17-foot catamaran. I'm like, what the heck is a 17-foot catamaran doing out here? And so I you know, talked to the folks in Miami at the 
rescue coordination center and they're saying, here's the situation. And you guys got to figure out what to do. And um, I decided that, okay, we got to launch the helicopter so it'll get there right as the sun's coming up. Um, and so that's the right thing to do, even though it may or may not happen. And I um, you know, called the captain and we went forward and launched the helicopter. And the helicopter got there right as the sailboat was falling apart. The guy jumped off the boat into the water. They hoisted him up. We got the helicopter back and we had, you know, had we not launched when we did before breakfast, getting everyone up earlier, which they're not happy about. <laughs> but had we not launched, we would have been in a place where there was too much pitch and roll and it wasn't safe to launch the helicopter. So we were able to do it. You know, by the time they got back, it was really rough, but the, they had, we were lucky at a great pilot. He was able to land. And then um, the storm hit that was even worse. And what it, this is back. Yeah, I don't remember when the perfect storm was, but this was the precursor to the perfect storm. You know, the perfect storm off the coast of New England was three storms all hitting. Yeah. This was the one that came up from the south. And so we were at a point where we were, you know, with our bow into the wind and into the seas, and we were making turns to go like we would be going eight knots. And we were, you know, being set backwards about half a knot. I mean, it was just going nowhere. There was no way we could have done this had we not acted right then. And so it was one oh, of those. Wow. You know, the decisions and the things I pushed for and, you know, had the conversation with the captain, you know, it was very angry was he? at me waking him and other, well, not waking him up, but like I, I kind of set things in motion that you then had to live with about launching so you the did helicopter. It anyway. You did it and then told him about I, it later? I, I kind of, you know, did it simultaneously while I was telling him. Yeah. And he's like, all right, well, we'll, we'll wait. We'll let people get up and have breakfast. And the other guy who worked for me was on the microphone waking everybody up. He's, he had some choice words for me. Yeah. But, um, it was the right decision and the guy's life was safe. And so that, that really um, struck home with me. Did he tell you what he was doing out there? He was trying to sail around the world in a Hobie cat. In a 17 foot? 17 foot Hobie cat. And he'd come down from Canada, down the East coast, been over in Cuba. He was going over to Mexico and you know, it's, this was <laughs> before we had reality TVs. This By was himself. This was like 98. Yeah. Maybe. Um, it was, it was crazy. Um, but, what? I mean, but that's not even which way around was he going? Pardon me? Which way around was he going? He was he, coming down the, down, he came down the East Coast um, from Florida, went over to Cuba, then from Cuba went over to Mexico, and then he was going to go down and around. And I, just, yeah. I don't know. He was young. Doesn't um, seem like a good plan. He was before the 25, 26 year old yeah, oh, brain. So the brain yeah, so, really, so, yeah. Some of those uh, decisions. But, gotcha. um, yeah, so that, that was definitely that. Um, on the Navy side, you know, the best experience I had, um, you know, was the before the Naval Academy graduation, the Blue Angels came up, oh. and uh, they have one of their jets has two seats in it, and I got to go up and do an hour of aerobatics in the back seat, which was nice. amazing. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was one of those dreams of a lifetime, you know, with my, um, both my dad and my uncle being pilots. Uh, they have that it's for training it's for they'll do familiarization flights for different people and i was able to um you know take advantage of their presence here in the dc area and go yeah. up and do that and it was just an amazing experience what did it feel like it was the best hour of my life bar none yeah did you feel the g's on you yeah. when you were doing all the Seven rolls and and, yeah it was awesome. yeah did you throw up after no 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 throw up yeah it was awesome yeah <laughs> it was great yeah but it was it was great also just to get to meet that whole team and uh, the precision, the excellence, everything they do uh, with the Blue Angels, it's all the same skills they would use in fight, you know, dogfighting and all of that. But it also helps highlight the value of the mission that the Navy performs for America. 
mm-hmm. and you know the navy and the marine corps the marine corps is a c-130 that goes with them and it's it, it was you know just an amazing amazing experience yeah getting to talk to those people who are that just that good at what they do it's yeah awesome. that sounds awesome yep you still know those guys maybe you can introduce me <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, no, but I, I look, I really appreciate you sitting down and chatting with us today. Um, you know, you've had a great career and you said a lot of great things here about, uh, leadership and the things you've learned and how you've just had experiences that have allowed you to experience fear and how that has helped you to process risk mm-hmm. throughout your life. And, and, you know, risk, this word risk feels bad. Whenever I hear the word risk, it always sounds like someone's talking, someone's talking about something bad. But it's just, I think it's just quantifying all the possible, the possible results mm-hmm. and then acting accordingly based on, you know, what may or may not happen. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's, risk is also an opportunity. And if you don't seize the opportunities, you're not going to make the progress. That's why you look at it, you know, as you increase risk, there's frequently an increase in value you know, yeah. to a point. Yeah. And yeah. so it's figuring out where that point is for each of us. But it's also where is it for the organization we work for and that type of thing and making sure that there's a balance there. And that there's also transparency, you know, for, you know, the transparency around the risk decision is also key. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders on Instagram at DC Local Leaders or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.